This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Get started. Welcome to TGIF DCT, the weekly live clubhouse meeting that we hold with special guests. And we also will offer this content in podcast form probably early next week on all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can find it there by searching Decentralized Clinical, and it should just pop right up. So this is Jane Miles, and I am delighted to host today with a special co-host, my dear friend, Joe Dustin. Hello. It's fantastic to be uh, hosting this. It's been a while. Uh, thanks for having me back. I am very excited for this topic. Um, as someone who's been in sort of clinical trial world for, for 20 years, I'm showing my age now. Um, it's very exciting to see how technology has reshaped the landscape on how we do research and how we make it more accessible and how we sort of provide options to the various stakeholders along the, the continuum. It's really exciting to have Noelle here um, because she is starting to really cut her teeth on a topic that I think is the next wave um, of where we can offer options of, you know, decentralized methods, but, you know, looking at the site experience as a priority. I think for years, we've always talked about the patient experience We've talked about being patient centric. We've talked about, you know, what decentralized trials would become from the beginning to where we are now. And I think that along the way, and I have no shame in saying this, I think some people forgot about the sites. And I think at this stage, we cannot do trials without sites. Um, there are many situations where we can go direct to patient, but there are many more situations where, uh, to me, a decentralized trial is always a hybrid model. You always are going to have to have some sites in the middle, whether they're a virtual site, a network, or an independent research facility. And so Noel has been working on uh, some some changes into the usual way of doing things and how <laughs> they interact with sites. Well, let, let's I'm take a breath here, Joe. Like yeah. one, let's just reset the room and say the topic is actually how. Noelle and her team brought tech from the sites, their own tech, into a trial setting in oncology. So that, yes, you see it in the title, but I'm just saying it in case you don't have the visual cue on the podcast. And this is an, an area, like Joe says, that's very dear to many of our hearts, because I can say as a sponsor um, in my past life, this didn't seem possible. So I'm very excited to hear how it goes from Noelle's story. And Joe, I thought maybe you could take a minute just to introduce yourself in terms of your your background. Like, yes, you've been in this space for a long time, but tell us just a moment where you've been focused and then we'll get to Noelle. Sure, thanks, Jane. Um, so, so for my background, my name is Joe Dustin. I've been 20 years in clinical trial technology um, the entire time with a, with a stint also in pharma itself on the inside. 
um, to kind of understand just the practical use case. Um, I've seen the birth of ECOA. I've been through the rise of EDC and various platforms that take us to where we are now, where I think I've seen the transition from paper to electronic on premise to the cloud. And now I think the rise of AI um, and automation, intelligent automation and whatever comes next. Interestingly enough, each of those big waves uh, happened during an economic downturn uh, where pharma completely reshuffled, reorganized, laid off, restructured, and digitally transformed various operations out of necessity. Um, and we are, I would consider, in the third wave of my 20 years in that right now. And so where we see lots of startup companies coming, I'm very excited to be part of that community. I've been that my entire career. Um, most recently, I was VP of ECOA at Medible. Before that, I was head of clinical innovation at, at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, and always excited to be talking to all of you. Thanks, Jane. That's perfect. And Noelle is here with us today, and she has a brand new role. But before we get her to introduce herself, I noticed you have the little celebration icon on your uh, profile picture. So that means Noelle is a Clubhouse new user. And I'll just take this moment to say, if you notice people on the Clubhouse today who you're not familiar with, make sure you connect with them. Like this is a great place to further your network. And Noelle is now joining our Clubhouse network. So thank you so much for being here with us. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey in this career space and where you are now. I know you've done an awful lot of interesting things, so you may have some <laughs> highlights along the way. Yeah, thank you, Jane, and, and thank you for the invitation today. I'm super excited to share what I hope will be some practical takeaways for everybody trying to innovate in this space. Um, and that comes really from a terrific uh, list long list of people we've been working with um, and so great to have the platform to share and, and hopefully bring things more into um, reality for DCT. Um, but yeah, with that said, I have, I'm completely biased from a site perspective. Let's just call it what it is. I have about, well, over 25 years now in research dating myself there. Um, most of that in clinical research, most of that in oncology. And, you know, I started as a coordinator, consenting patients, um, hundreds of patients, and um, understand the nuances of that, you know, exactly what happens, you know, at the site level and all the complexity there. Um, I went on to be an administrator of an NIH center at the Texas Medical Center, and then went on to lead a large uh, research community-based network. So I think you could say I have a very good appreciation of not only you know, the operations and the reality of that from a site perspective, but also from their business and their technology perspective. So from there, I went, and I think this is a helpful backdrop to the conversation today, but I, I think at that point, I was about 20 years in, and I was beating my head up against the wall, like I'm sure everybody on this podcast has, right, in clinical research, in that we just, you know, couldn't make for better change. We couldn't get more patients on trial. In fact, we were getting less patients on trial because we saw, you know, biomarker specific or targeted molecules. And so it's no longer the um, <laughs> that initial IO days where we had hundreds of patients on trial and said, so to, I think halfway keep my sanity, but also to still continue to drive towards my passion, which is connecting and providing access of clinical research to patients in the community. I said, let me make a change and let me go to the technology side of things. So I had a wonderful stint um, at a company with um, some DCT leaders. I was in their leadership team and um, that included Amy Abernathy and Brad Hirsch, who I think have probably been guests here in the past. Um, I learned a lot from them from a decentralized trial perspective, but also of course, from a technology perspective. Um, and then went on to complete my 360 goal, which is then go to work for actually a biotech over the last about four years now. Um, so sitting at the biotech side of things, you know, we can see how risk adverse sponsors, as we call them in quotations, big bad sponsors maybe are. But what's been really fun is to bring that 360 perspective and say, look guys, sites can do this or sites have this technology. So let's talk about how we can actually lead with them and make for change in the decentralized trial model. 
So look forward to elaborating on that. Well, that, that is just awesome. And thank you so much. First, I applaud you for taking that journey on the 360 degree view. I've spent lots of time at sites, but I haven't actually worked full time at a site. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I think that that really does give you a very unique, maybe unicorn like view of the ecosystem. So bravo you. Uh, and you've had some pretty good mentors. You're right. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So congrats on that. And now you're moving from a smaller biotech into a bigger organization. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you'll take your lessons learned and integrate them there. But, but first, let's just start with the context. When you talk about how sites have their own technology and it's useful in a DCT setting, Mm -hmm. How did you go about validating that and what mm -hmm. test cases can you share with us? Well, I think the success I have to share at a high level today is the fact that the FDA has blessed this model that it can speak to at a high level. Um, so as much as we have kind of been swirling in the DCT details and how to figure out certain things, at the end of the day, I'm here to say, you know, the FDA is supportive and has provided clarity. And, you know, this was born out of a conversation with a research organization and their leadership, along with, um, yes, a sponsor and the FDA all at the same table around a particular project. Um, and what we got was a green light. And I think that's um, per the request of these research leaders, the message they want to get out there. So. Again, I'm happy here just to share that, you know, like, look, they have it. So what do I, what do I mean by that? You know, maybe diving, or as you guys say, double click into something a little bit more. Um, Cause I really want people to say, I, I learned something today and this is something that's very practical for me. So what I would share with you is that there's two keys to uh, what would be a successful model, um, perhaps being, you know, again, aligned between the site's sponsor and the FDA and the two keys to that successful model is one, having that site-centric approach, right? And then also two, the sponsor adapting to that approach. And I think that's where we probably have suffered in the decentralized trial space. Um, so I can definitely go into your question, Jane, around what is that site-centric approach? And when we talk about technology and oversight, how do we make sure that those things are intact from a compliance perspective? Um, just a yeah. quick question, actually. Um, I was curious, Noelle, if as we dive into your specific use case, can you set the context on the regulatory intent of the trial where you, or trials where you tested this model, please? Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep things at a very high level, but I think that's a good question. So to provide some context, um, we have, I, today what I think we're talking about is, um, you know, in my world, oncology, right? So I'll definitely have uh, my examples relating to that world. And I always believed having worked in other um, specialties, if you figured out oncology, you can figure out the rest of the allergies. So hopefully again, still rela relates to the audience today, but oncology interventional trials, particularly, um, you know, it's always helpful to, I believe from a decentralized trial perspective to still think about the space of, um, in this case, you know, maybe an oral drug, it just makes things easier, although that's not a must have. I would also say, you know, ideally we're still in the space, just as the regulations call out, of working from a decentralized perspective on molecules that we do have some toxicity profile and understanding of, right? These, these are not first in human trials and my examples are not in, in that extreme. Um, I would say it's it's later down the line when you're having a good understanding of, again, the, the profile of the drug. And last but not least, to provide the context that you're asking for, um, I would say we're in the hybrid space in my examples today. So what do I mean by that? I mean that the PI is not sitting right next to the patient. The patient might be, you know, in a location a few miles away. It might be that the patient is in, you know, multi, across the nation. Um, and then they may even be at a point of care that is actually not 
qualified or doesn't do clinical research at all. Um, and so I can dive into a little bit of what does that mean and the oversight piece, because I think that's super important. But um, that, that's the context and the backdrop of the examples I'll provide today. So coming back up to the 30,000 foot level, interventional trials in an oncology setting that probably included community research, uh, community mm -hmm. care centers. Mm -hmm. And did you intend for the data to be reviewed by the FDA? Yes. Got it. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah. And I love these examples because I want this to work in oncology. I know, Joe, right? <laughs> I know you've got questions burning. What do you want to ask? Yeah, so so Noelle, it's, so the key here that I'm saying, hearing is set up for the question is that you were collaborative early in a cross-functional manner with FDA. So this is US only at the moment mm -hmm. and uh, with sites. So you had sites that already had their own technology. This would be considered, I think, software and hardware. Is that a yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they were able to say, just let us handle this. Okay. And yeah. I would say in some pharma organizations, um, they're most concerned about control, which equals okay. risk, right? <laughs> and so <clears throat> in our contracts and whatnot, that we do have to give some level of trust to the sites that they're going to do things ethically and do things responsibly and handle things the way that they would handle it. And they have their own SOPs to handle these things. How did you convince besides the FDA giving a thumbs up the sponsor, like in data management or like in compliance group that we're going to let the sites do this. So we're going to acquire the data the way they want to give it to us, as opposed to forcing them to use our tech. How did you get your internal teams to say yes? I would add the clinician too, frankly, like statistician, data manager, clinician, all of those key stakeholders. Within, within pharma, you mean? Yeah. 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 And okay. I think this is where we all start, right? We go, oh my gosh, you guys, I have to get so many people on board and I have to go through so many committees. This is just not gonna work, right? I think that's really been a barrier to DCD adoption, not only because we maybe don't take a site-centric approach and we'll dive into that, but also because it's just not only risk, but it's, it's a ton of work, right? And then who's being, asked to do all of this or champion it you know it's it's sometimes very distracted organizations that we work for as sponsors and um you know it, it's just it seems impossible so then we just don't do it right so all your questions are extremely relevant and i hope you're prepared for long answers um <laughs> but i'll still stay high level because i think what we have to say is if the sites have figured it, it out this is the high level answer right if the sites have figured it out and the FDA has blessed it, you can be on the last boat, you know, to, to sail into the DCT waters as pharma because you wanna make sure everybody else did it before you, or you can be on the first boat. And that's what I'm here to tell you guys today is that these sites have it figured out. They have infrastructure, they have compliance, and, and they have the, the thumbs up from the FDA and they have the due diligence and it's, um, you know, I, I love to go to this example of like uh, a conversation I have frequently um, in, informing my partners um, within the sponsor of the CRO world. Um, and I tell them whenever we get into these conversations about like, how do we let the site do that? Or how do we know that they have X, Y, or Z? Well, like, first of all, we can do due diligence as needed, right? We can document all that, make sure but yeah, it's a bit of a leap of faith to say that they have, you know, that completed quality management system, if you will, around this model. But let me tell you a story. And that is sites, particularly in the community in the United States, um, on, I would probably say every oncology trial, at least in the nation, um, that are US-based that have community practices. Let me tell you what's happening every day. They're driving drug around. They're taking it from one location to another location. In some cases, they have an entire depot next to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And they're shipping that drug on a platform that has technology, that has um, you know, very sophisticated infrastructure, and they're shipping it overnight, first in human drug to, let's say, Willamette Valley, 
um, very far from DFW. And they have temperature excursions and they have SOPs and they have stalls of people just monitoring this every single day at that distribution center. And you're like, why am I boring you with, with investigational product management? It's because in our protocol, guys, that's not in there. And we have so much going on at the sites that as sponsors, and even from a CRO perspective, that we probably don't know all the nuances of, but um, the monitor going out there probably does have <laughs> the visibility to it and comfort level with it. And that's the same thing we need to start thinking about here from a decentralized trial perspective. If they have, you know, part 11 compliance because it's been COVID guys and they have a tele-oncology program um, that they are using for standard of care and research purposes for years now, we probably need to trust them with that. And the examples go on and on, and they have gone on for years and years and years, again, going back to that example of investigational product management. It's just that pharma and CROs at times probably don't know the nuances of how sites are operationalizing. But at the end of the day, the guidance says they have to make sure that those things are compliant and look good. And then we just have to have some trust and leap of faith in that they're going to, as they are clinical research organizations, comply with the guidance, right? And we do our due diligence and, and so on. But I would say back to those two keys, one being the site-centric approach, the sites have figured this out, right? We've said that, but you're telling, I know your next question is going to be like, but Noelle, how do we know they figured it out and what they're doing? And the answer is they have a playbook. Um, so these research organizations, again, are getting really sophisticated and moving this forward very quickly. They have playbooks that they've developed that say, look, this is how I'm going to do um, direct-to-patient shipping. This is my drug accountability SOP. It literally is a, an outline of how they would deploy the decentralized trial model. And as sponsors, we need to take a seat and say, is, is this going to meet, you know, yes, compliance, can we do some due diligence of it? But that playbook points us as sponsors at what is the infrastructure and how are they going to use it for DCT? And the other key takeaway I would share with you guys about this playbook is that that can go to the FDA if you really feel like you have to have um, some risk mitigated. You're like, I don't know about this you can give it to the FDA and they can give you that feedback too. Go so ahead, qu question about the playbook. So are you saying yeah. that you have a playbook or each individual site has their own playbook? So in this context? hopefully not every individual site. Um, what we're seeing is the large research organizations or networks is probably the better word there do have the playbook, but as sponsor, my playbook is still going to be my protocol. And I think we can dive into that too, but to to keep it for just a minute on the site side of things, um, you have to have a site playbook that outlines not only the technology and what they're using and how they want to roll out DCT, but a key element of that playbook is going to be oversight. So I think we've all talked about decentralized trials and um, you know, that reaching a patient um, beyond the walls of that academic center or the four walls that the PI sits in, that's a key element of this playbook as well. Um, but Joe, back to your question, it is not a one-size-fits-all playbook either. It's one network is going to do it differently than the hospital system, and they have a different playbook. And the why behind that is, again, their technology suite might be different. But they also have a comfort level and a quality management system around PI oversight. And that is not going to be the same between one or the other. I think to take a step back, you know, we are failing with innovation, um, really being uh, having uptake of innovation within clinical research because we are not okay with the fact that one thing might be done different between one organization and another. And we need to just take a step back and say, again, like that drug distribution that's been going on for years and years and years, it's okay that one organization will say, hey, I can oversee all of Texas. And another organization will say, I can oversee my network across the country. As long as we know, right, what they have intact and what their oversight plans are and their SOPs, that should be a key component of this playbook. 
I'm going to double click to use that term because I agree 100% with you, Noel. And it's not so much about BYOT, but one of the places where I see friction arises in DCTs generally is when we are not exactly clear on the handoffs in the DCT setting. That's a little different from the tech, um, the tech platform space alone. But the reason that we have friction there is because for traditional trials, a lot of what happens is invisible to us because the sites just know what to do and how they do it well. Of course, we monitor it to make sure that it meets the protocol requirements, but we don't do a detailed SOP for the site on all of their processes. And I think that's really an interesting bar that we seem to put in place for DCTs that we don't put in place for traditional trials. Might be a little controversial. So we don't <laughs> want to add more complexity where mm -hmm. we don't need it. Perfect. I think, Jane, where we tend to do that as sponsors, and I, I say sponsors, and again, I, that's where I sit today, but again, having this bias for sites, my perspective really comes from those 20 years of being in the site level not everything needs to be in the protocol. The guidance doesn't say that everything needs to be in the protocol. And to your point, if we micromanage it in the protocol, inherently one organization can't do what the other one does. So we need to take a step back and say, you know, absolutely there's key elements of what needs to go into the protocol from a DCT perspective. I'm happy to dive into that. If we wanna go there later in the discussion, but what I would say is number one is, you know, stop and say, does it have to go in there? Because if you're naming the platform of the telehealth you know, system, or you are specifying the oversight plan for an organization or referring to it at all in any level of detail, you're inherently not gonna be able to deploy that plan or that protocol expansively. So I don't think, and that's what I've learned, right? The FDA wanted us to have terribly different looking protocols in the space of DCT. But what they wanted, and that was a learning for me, was a protocol that helps everyone understand what's virtual, what isn't, amongst several other aspects that, again, detailed in the guidance. Yes, we have to have that clear in the protocol to some extent. But then we also need to pair that with playbooks. And the playbooks are research organization specific. And that together, guys, is bringing a quality management system, if you think about it, of how to deploy a DCT trial between the sponsor side of responsibilities and the site side of responsibilities. And why in the world did we ever start thinking as sponsors that it was all ours? I, th I think we have to take a step back. Hmm. I have a bazillion questions, but um, can we talk about data standards just for a second? Because Yes, the sites have their playbooks, but how did you, or maybe did you at all, define the data standards and parameters that needed to be met by each of the sites participating in the trial? Yeah, so so let's let's talk about tech. I think this goes back to technology. So maybe to start there and come back to to answer the question. Um, we know that sites, telehealth, right? Um, if you, if they're deploying, let's say it's two different research organizations and they're deploying a decentralized trial model, each one of those organizations is going going to use because it's not a total, you know, um, free for all, right? Like you have some way, you have a specific protocol, <laughs> you have a specific, you know, as I'm talking to my examples, I'm talking specifically around a hybrid DCT where the patient is still being seen, but it may not be a research PI. It may not be somebody on the 1572. And so there's, there's some architecture, right? That these sites are trying to align to, and they have a general playbook, but maybe they need to make something that's a little bit more specific to your protocol. So I say this because then everything starts to become standardized. So once you get like the architecture of what you're trying to accomplish in place and let the sites react to it, at the end of the day, they're all gonna have a telehealth platform. They're probably gonna have an e-consent, ETMF, 
uh, clinical trial management system, I can go on and on, right? Like this is my learnings of, of going around to different research organizations and working with their technology suite. Like they have that. So we as sponsors don't need to invade that. Um, what we have that we complement with their uh, technology stack is an EDC. So we have, you know, at the end of the day where the data is going to end up, but we want to ask now that we have our technology platform standardized across these organizations. What I mean by that is, again, I'm not providing the EHR where the data is going in at the hospital. I'm providing the EDC in my example. Um, so, but we all understand that. We all understand what I'm providing, what they're providing. Um, now, between the different research organizations, you might have different vendors that they're using. One might be using Epic and one might be using Flatiron for an EHR, as an example. Um, but, you know, the architecture is across the board consistent of who's doing what on what platforms. And so now I have to trust that these organizations understand how to enter data into their EHR. They do that all day anyway. And what happens at a site level that sometimes I think we forget about is that the, the PI is not entering in the data in the EDC most of the time. I know some of you will raise your hand and say, I, I do that <laughs> where I have that model, but most of the time, particularly in oncology, the PI is not you know, talking to his clinical research patient, turning around and, and putting data into the EDC, right? What's happening is the patient's being seen and in the context of oncology specifically, the patient's sick, right? So the data is going into a, an electronic health record or EHR. That's your patient record, right? That uh, belongs to their system that they're receiving care. Some of that data is gonna be relevant for standard of care purposes and some of it relevant for clinical research purposes. And then there is a person and it is usually not the PI and they are stepping into the chair and they are usually a data manager, maybe a coordinator, and they are looking in the EHR and they are pulling the pertinent data that they need for the clinical research trial and they're putting it in the EDC. So I guess my answer, Jane, at a high level is um, there's a lot of questions that come up for data, but I think it's really simple. The PI is not physically needing to be located exactly next to the patient in order to gain the data that we need for the EDC. And we know that because these organizations have very sophisticated EHR systems that they're using every day all the time for clinical research studies. And sometimes I just don't know if we forget that that's not even needing the PI to be physically present in front of the patient to get that same data asset into the EDC. That's a super high level answer. And I know we could go down data rabbit holes for a very long time, but one last thing I would add, these EHRs, you can, the complexity of them, it, it, they're very complex, but in a good way. You can even, in these organizations, place orders remotely. So there's a lot with the EHR uh, that really actually starts to accelerate the DCT model that I don't know we appreciate in the beginning because it's not something that pharma uses, right? It's something that sites use. And they're like, wait a minute, I can see the labs that were drawn, you know, 30 minutes away closer to the patient's home. And I can see it at the same time that the research site could see it. And I can see, you know, everything that's happening to the patient, even their ER visits, and I'm not physically present with them. Joe, I know you so, have a follow-up here. Yeah, yeah, so, all right, two and, questions. One is, do you think that EHR to EDC technology is the right answer to the thing that you just described? Or do I you think, think that there's something weird. else in between? We have to evolve to that. And, you know, there's definitely organizations like Sarah Cannon, I know, has a model there. Yep. But, but pharma is very, let's talk in realities, right? We are not going to do it tomorrow. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of good reasons, but I want to see it happen. But the reality of today is, um, pharma well, we've been trying, been... we've been trying for 12 years, but okay. <laughs> right. Tomorrow. Sure. Right. Okay. Let, let's, let's get to patients who are not in front of the PI and, you know, let's trust that they have these platforms. And then I think you'll see this happening as a next step. That's, that's my perspective on it. Um, absolutely. We need to get to that space. 
but you don't, I don't want to scare anybody away saying that that has to happen either. So no, you, you can still have your traditional data model. Um, it, nothing's changing because the, the PI is not in person in front of the patient when they had the physical exam. Okay, well, I know we've got a bunch more questions. I got some that are <laughs> burning, but I want to take a moment and just reset the room and say, if you're here with us right now live, thanks for staying. And now is the time when we would open the floor to questions from the audience. To do that, just raise your hand. And I think on my phone, it looks like a little person with a plus sign icon down in the right hand corner of my phone. So if you have a question and it's burning, please join us here on stage. The other thing I will remind you is that this will be available in a podcast format next week. So if you miss something key, you can go back and get it. Um, all right, Joe, you've got another question that's burning, I know. Okay, uh, let's start with a simple yes, no, and then mm -hmm. maybe we talk more, but maybe we keep it simple. Did you have to... Sponsors typically will never audit a site's EHR, like from right. a validation perspective. Did you, mm -hmm. were you forced to audit sites own tech, like their own internal e-source system or their own CTMS or their own, were you forced to do an audit from a sponsor perspective before you could do this? No, there's nothing not. different happening in this model that isn't happening in an everyday basis on all the clinical research trials that that site's conducting. That's from fantastic. a from a technology perspective or data perspective, the only difference is the telehealth. Honestly, the telehealth platform, the fact that the the research PI might be virtual but via video, but your data is not going anywhere different or weird or being managed any way. Again, different than what it would normally. I think sometimes we forget, like the the patient again is not sitting there with the data coordinator <laughs> yep. like this yeah. is exactly how things are entered in and how the data flows on a regular basis it's just the patient happens to be virtually seen via video conference so data is not doing something terribly different here this falls into the bucket of letting sites use their own thing in chunks and buckets i think are easily accepted by pharma and i think the first areas of that were yeah, let them use their own telehealth platform. Let them use their mm -hmm. own e-consent platform. Let them use their own scheduling and, and uh, engagement platform. You know, especially a lot of uh, larger or mid-sized institutions have created this already with their IT departments. But when you, as soon as you get into, let them use their own EDC or e-source mm -hmm. system, and mm -hmm. we will acquire that data from the way they, and if we can stamp it, farmer stamp of approval, that's just as good as whatever we've paid millions of dollars for in pharma. Where's that line? I don't think we're going to do EDCs in that capacity tomorrow. Um, not to say, again, I'm here to advocate that we don't, you know, make the EDC model more friendly. And again, EHR, EDC all day long, let's do that. But I do want the audience to walk away to say, I can do this tomorrow. I can, I can take away some things here tomorrow and not scare them off by saying, well, you know, pharma has to use your EDC. It's just not gonna happen <laughs> overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we see some technology that is becoming more of the norm for pharma to use the same platform and the site uses now the same platform. Let's, in the example of maybe their NIH studies, right? Is on the same platform, uh, EDC, as it is, the EDC also that the pharma companies tend to use a lot. I see, I like that. You know, I think if we have more of the same vendor, you know, I hate that word, but unfortunately um, in the space of, um, you know, on the site side of things and the sponsor side of things, then it all becomes, it all starts to flow and become one data aggregation workflow. But until we're in that space, my answer is, is still gonna be don't worry about it, pharma, because your EDC will be intact, your data management, and all of those check boxes, which is so precious to us, um, for good reason, uh, that is that's still going to be intact. And that's no, nothing there is going to be different at all. Okay, I've got a question from the chat, and I'm going to put it on stage for Michael, uh, but I'm going to add to it. So the question that has come up in the chat is, 
how do you do a virtual physical exam? And Noelle, <laughs> the addition I have for you is, and how do you help ensure that the PI has appropriate oversight of it if it's being done virtually, maybe by a different care provider? Mm -hmm so that the sponsors feel like the PI oversight is meeting their expectations? This is a perfect question, and this is absolutely the hardest answer um, for us to have figured out with these different organizations. Because again, I have to make sure my organization is willing to comply with whatever the answer is, right? Maybe they say they don't want to do it this way or that way, then we don't have a successful model. So there's more than one answer. I'm saying that because there's more than one research organization and how they're comfortable complying with the model. And there's more than one way of providing PI oversight. I'll drill down into this. Um, but at a high level before drilling into the next level of detail, I want to share with everyone that this can be a very big limitation to interventional studies. If we are mandating um, you know, in some cases that the PI be virtual and that the, the physician be, um, uh, the, the, there be also a physician physically present and the v PI virtual at the same time. Having two physicians literally just talk to each other around a patient schedule and in a clinic at the same time and on a video conference, it's going to be an adoption barrier. So the, the right answer to this question is to take that question constantly back to the FDA. I think it really depends on your study and the toxicity profile of, of, your, of your investigational product, the risk profile to the patient. There's a lot of factors. Um, and that's, I'm definitely not a regulatory expert to say this is the end all be all answer. I think it's something that we also need to push the FDA for and saying, you know, is there a more effective way when we do know that, you know, we're looking for some AE, SAE data, and we do know that, you know, we need to be watching some patients pretty closely. Is there a better way is what I'm saying. Um, there's a terrific thought leader uh, in Texas who's, who has a soapbox here. He's like, this is, this is a big, you know, detractor for me being able to roll this model out. Okay, all that said, I think I've qualified my answers a lot, but um, I, I would just, answer it and give you one example uh, to answer the question as well. Um, and that is, yes, in some cases, what we understand from the FDA, they are going to ask us to be um, coordinating with a, a research PI or sub I, right, who's trained on the 1572, who understands the and has been trained on, right, the adverse event management, the adverse event data collection, you know, all the things that they need to know and look for with their patient, they need to be coordinating with somebody who's physically hands-on with the patient. And in this example, this would be a provider um, that is not trained on the 1572. It's not a uh, research uh, qualified individual. Um, it could be their, you know, oncologist that, in my world, oncology, um, their oncologist that sees the patient regularly for their standard of care, um, as well as for this model of a DCT. Um, so that person is not trained on, on the specific protocol. And uh, then they video conference in the research sub-IPI, whomever, uh, that is responsible for the protocol and trained on the 1572. And they need to be, get, be together so that they can help guide the physical exam based on the known toxicity profile of the, of the molecule. I think that's extreme and I think that's the most extreme example. Um, it is also where some trials will fail, like they just can't take off in DCT day one because of this. And meaning, you know, if, um, if the, if the drug is very toxic or we don't know the toxicity of the drug, you can't just have somebody, you know, in the field without any training on the protocol. There's probably not a comfort level, right, for anybody in that paradigm. But um, as we start to gain understanding of these drugs and they get further into phase three and four, this, this could be a requirement, the example I gave. And then after that, it may become less so. But I think, again, this is where we have to push the FDA because it, it really does start to break down people participating. 
Well, it's interesting because I'm going to agree and say, I actually think the FDA is kind of pushing us too, if you want to hear my, my opinion. Because in the draft DCT guidance, there is reference to how to include HCPs as non-investigators in trials. And clearly there's an, an interest and will on the part of the FDA to use that approach. It, it sounds to me, Noelle, like the way you set up your use cases aligns closely to the intention of that guidance. And I hear from so many people across the ecosystem, they aren't clear on how to implement it. Do you think we're overthinking it or do you have any pearls of wisdom to help people feel more comfortable to adopt it? I love that they updated it because we had so many questions. And again, I, I'm going to say we all day because this is definitely not just me, right? This is a huge team effort um, with people who are experts in regulations and the guidance and, and then the thought leaders at the site level. We all had conversations for years, literally. And we had so many questions. And then when they updated the guidance, we said, okay, even though it was more it was more specificity, but it answered a lot of our questions. And so that was actually very helpful. Um, but then there's still always these nuances that you get into with my protocol and my toxicity profile, and is this good enough? And that's where I go back to what the FDA's mantra is, which is talk early and talk often. What I would add to that mantra is bring your research organization bring the playbook and have that conversation together because then you're not guessing, right? I think we're so hesitant with this model and it's not taking off because we're afraid of, of having something that the FDA comes back after we've collected, you know, hundreds of patients of data and says, nope, this was not good enough and therefore this data won't be accepted. Well, no, like let's start in the beginning with all of us coming to the table and saying, is this good? Is this, do you think this is gonna be appropriate? And I don't think they're shying away from those conversations. So I'm doubling down here just to get real clear. I think what you're saying is bring the sites that you expect to be involved, not everyone perhaps, but let's say in your case, you were using a couple of big networks, bring those sites with you to the regulatory strategy planning sessions. Is that what yep. you're saying? Yep. And as a pharma, we are going to say, uh-oh, that means I have to do a ton of planning before I roll my protocol out. No, um, not exactly. Anyway, um, it's never a bad deal, but we all know that the reality is we're like, get the protocol out, get the protocol out. So, um, so don't, don't say, well, I can't do this then because I, I never have the lead time is what I'm saying. But what I would say is that you could, um, you could be considering adapting your protocol. So we talked about two keys, right? One was the site-centric approach, which we've elaborated on. The second key is pharma adapting to that site-centric approach. So we could roll out a protocol, think of it that way, talk to the FDA about a DCT model that supports that protocol, and then have you know a version of the protocol that's uh, for DCT um, organization organizations because it doesn't need to be every site right that's it doesn't it's not binary you know oh this study is only dct it could be like you know one or two or however many organizations are running it in a dct model and here's what that looks like and that's a version of how the protocol is getting executed um i hope that's helpful just to say I think this is where people, again, we're getting stuck with DCT, like, oh my gosh, then I got to take my site and I got to take a playbook and what is a playbook and I have to have all of that ready and perfect up front. No, you know, still do your traditional model, but then complement it and evolve it. I, I think the FDA wants us to do that. I, I'm got a mental picture, Noelle, of minds blowing out in the audience, but I, I love <laughs> what you're saying. And it is not necessarily the way that pharma teams think about protocol development. Mm -hmm. You know, it is about getting it signed off, getting that first patient in. And what you're saying is maybe we need a flexible model in how the protocol is executed. By the way, that already happens. We just don't always codify it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, hey, Noel, do you think that sites would be more attractive 
to sponsor well maybe maybe i'm framing this wrong do you think sites would get more studies if they did this and invested in this and because that's always the thing i hear from sites is we're just trying to mm-hmm. find more studies and also mm-hmm. get paid on time and accurately but find more studies I um mean, and you know, really the answer is is yes because you know having going back to my days of running a large research organization 50 percent of my staff supporting projects was you know being burned with wasted time if because of the what we know are the barriers to clinical trial enrollment so what am i saying if you mitigate the barriers of clinical trial enrollment by having a dct model which is why we all talk about dct then inherently you can have a larger portfolio of trials why because they're easier to execute your pi is not having to physically you know be in a room with 30 patients you actually have a network of hopefully uh, non-research organizations or non-research locations, whatever that oversight is, right, that they're comfortable with, that's actually helping to engage the patient base and enrolling them on the clinical trial and not exhausting these few key people on the clinical research team. Um, All of that needs to be carefully weighted, by the way, I'm not saying let's go to hundreds of patients, (laughs) but inherently, if you're making trials easier, you will have a larger portfolio and therefore you will be able to do more because I don't think it's so much that research organizations can't get trials. It's it's that, that they have to limit themselves on their volume because there's only so many they can execute. They're just dying at the, at the site level, right? From having lack of resources, lack of turnover, and and you know you lost your data manager and therefore you have to put all your studies on hold this is going to help um hopefully alleviate those burdens which is why dtra is so important well thank you for that um and by the way i was looking at data yesterday from the scrs survey of their sites and the sites perceived that DCTs would always be harder and require more resources. And some of them said that was the case. Yes. When they, when, when, you know, pharma company A shows up and says, you have to use my technology suite that you've never touched before. And pharma company B has a completely different one. I mean, absolutely. There is a huge cost and time and adoption burden with those approaches. And that's exactly what we're talking about here today, right? Let's flip it and let's do site centric and bring your own technology site. And then actually what we saw in this example is that there was no additional cost because we didn't have to deploy a technology suite that was novel to these organizations. And then there was no adoption issues either. Well, you might've just hit on the most important impact metric for those people we're trying to convince. So no, additional cost at the site level, does that mean you also spared some cost on the sponsor side? So to clarify, we definitely have some costs at the site level that um, are novel for the DCT model. So I would use the example, there's more, but one example would be, let's say that standard of care practitioner who is um, you know, seeing the patient and you also have a PI on video conference, you're gonna have a little bit of more cost in that space, right? Um, because it's not just the PI, um, it's more than one individual. But um, from a technology perspective, on the sponsor side, there was no additional cost to um, the sponsor because, again, we're leveraging right what the site already has in place. Oh, that is that is awesome, and now my mind is blowing. So that's all. Joe, I see you've got a question. Yeah, so I see we're coming, you know, almost up on time. So Noelle, if there's a takeaway, if I if I if I ask you to summarize your experience in this idea, what would be one thing you learned, and one thing you would suggest other people to do if they want to start to go down this road on their own, and based on what you've learned. I want to take it up to the site, to the clinical research innovation level and say, if we trust our sites, which we have to do, right? Like there's a huge amount of trust already with them and that they may be receiving the first ever dose of the drug or, and they're taking care of the patients, right? We trust them. We already have a relationship with our sites. Then why can't we trust them here? And 
I don't think people are opposed, you know, to it so much as they're just afraid of it. And I hope this conversation helps to uh, normalize what may be um, previously a perceived level of risk that honestly I don't think exists because the at the end of the day, the FDA I think is our friend here and to take what you're trying to do to them and getting a thumbs up from them that really is mitigating any of the fears and concerns. And again, all the way back to what James said in the beginning, um, what about your data management committee, blah, blah, you know, we all have like fancy acronyms and sponsors for different people who have to look at everything we're doing. Someone inevitably in an org structure of hundreds of people is going to raise their hand and say, you can't do that. And I had the fortune of working with terrific leaders um, at my biotech who said, okay, tell me why. I think that's what we really need to focus on to have innovation and clinical research uh, take off. You know, again, listening and trusting our sites as partners, but also let's just not say no to say no, but actually ask how or why. And, you know, let's get to that goal. And what happens is that you, you end up finding the answers and at the end of the day, check the box with the FDA, right? What do we have to lose? Well, no is the easiest answer in the world, actually. <laughs> so um, I, I want to say thank you so much, Joe, and, and I'll give you a moment here because I'm going to give you a little uh, love on stage. And thank you so much, Noel. I, I feel like we could have another whole conversation, but you are going to present this at the ACRP meeting in early May. So if you want a deeper dive, try to attend the session. Um, and I wanted to just acknowledge that we've heard a lot from our whole ecosystem across DTRA that people are seriously interested in how do we make this, what I call sites bringing their own technology, BYOT, a reality. And so we're starting an initiative on that in the next few weeks. And we are very pleased that Joe's going to be directly involved in that initiative, but we're looking for member participants and really eager. In fact, we don't even know what the deliverables will look like. So when you join the initiative, you actually get to figure out how would we solve for this. So that's my little advertisement and thank you to Joe. And Joe, did you want to chime in with any last words? No, I think it's, it's an area that I'm pretty excited about, not only just because I think it's the right thing to do, but listen, in, in my 20 years of technology and clinical trials, I think the next wave is going to come from sites, right? Everybody wants the sweet, sweet pharma money if you're a tech company to try and get solutions adopted to get yourself over the hump. But sites typically have not had the funds like pharma, but there's something happening right now where they are the next wave of growth, I think, in our industry when it comes to innovation. And as someone who's done this in pharma before, um, I can agree with you wholeheartedly, Noel, that like, we have to say why, why not, <laughs> in a way, um, yeah. we all, many of us agree to this, is to get it done. And I do think that there's something to be had here. So, so I'm saying this from a perspective of DTRA and from our industry that pay attention to sites, not only do they need our help, um, but I think that there's a opportunities to be had for new startups and, uh, newer pharma companies that are trying to differentiate themselves, I guess I've done faster, um, to invest in this area, because I think it will help differentiate their pipeline and get stuff to market faster. I think that's real. So, you're so right. You're so right, Joe. That's, I think really what precipitated a lot of the innovation here. And again, I, I specifically can't take credit for it. It was the fact that. It is such a competitive space, particularly in oncology. So, you know, I think people are becoming, again, I'm not, I don't think these are big risks discussions. I think we just, you just got to get on paper, um, but they're willing to step into that because we desperately need patients on trial. We desperately need them on trial in the community. And that's where decentralized trials come in, right? That is a perfect little bow on an hour that could go on a lot longer. I'm going to drop a little pin because 
Next week, on the rarest of all days, is Rare Disease Day. February 29th is Rare Disease Day. Remember, it's a leap year this year. So make sure you wear your stripes to acknowledge rare disease patients and needs. And we have a special guest next week on us with on this podcast next week, who's a physician who is implementing decentralized trials specifically for rare disease patients. And we're gonna get to hear how he's going about this and why he feels it's an imperative. So join us next week for that conversation and be proud to show your stripes. Thank you so much for joining and we look forward to being with you next week. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Noel.